fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, the month of Kislev. The people of Bethel had sent Sharazar and Regamelech together with their men to entreat the Lord by asking the priests of the house of the Lord Almighty and the prophets, should I mourn and fast in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? Then the word of the Lord Almighty came to me. Ask all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months for the past 70 years, was it really for me that you fasted? And when you were eating and drinking, were you not just feasting for yourselves? Are these not the words the Lord proclaimed through the earlier prophets when Jerusalem and its surrounding towns were at rest and prosperous and the Negev and the western foothills were settled? And the word of the Lord came again to Zechariah. This is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. But they refused to pay attention. Stubbornly they turned their backs and covered their ears. They made their hearts as hard as flint and would not listen to the law or to the words that the Lord Almighty had sent by his spirit through the earlier prophets. So the Lord Almighty was very angry. When I called, they did not listen. So when they called, I would not listen, says the Lord Almighty. I scattered them with a whirlwind among the nations where they were strangers. The land they left behind them was so desolate that no one traveled through it. This is how they made the pleasant land desolate. The word of the Lord Almighty came to me. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I am very jealous for Zion. I am burning with jealousy for her. This is what the Lord says. I will return to Zion and dwell in Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord Almighty will be called, called the holy mountain. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Once again, men and women of ripe old age will sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each of them with cane in hand because of their age. The city streets will be filled with boys and girls playing there. This is what the Lord Almighty says. It may seem marvelous to the remnant of this people at that time, but will it seem marvelous to me? declares the Lord Almighty. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will save my people from the countries of the east and the west. I will bring them back to live in Jerusalem. They will be my people and I will be faithful and righteous to them as their God. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Now hear these words. Let your hands, <clears throat> hands be strong so that the temple may be built. This is also what the prophets said who were present when the foundation was laid for the house of the Lord Almighty. Before that time, there were no wages for people or hire for animals. No one could go about their business safely because of their enemies, since I had turned everyone against their neighbor. But now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as I did in the past, declares the Lord Almighty. The seed will grow well, 
The vine will yield its fruit. The ground will produce its crops and the heavens will drop their dew. I will give all these things as an inheritance to the remnant of this people. Just as you, Judah and Israel, have been a curse among the nations, so I will save you and you will be a blessing. Do not be afraid, but let your hands be strong. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Just as I had determined to bring disaster on you and showed no pity when your ancestors angered me, says the Lord Almighty, so now I have determined to do good again to Jerusalem and Judah. Do not be afraid. These are the things you are to do. Speak the truth to each other and render true and sound judgment in your courts. Do not plot evil against each other and do not love to swear falsely. I hate all this, declares the Lord. The word of the Lord Almighty came to me. This is what the Lord Almighty says. The fasts for the fourth, fifth, seventh and tenth months will become joyful and glad occasions and happy festivals for Judah. Therefore, love, truth and peace. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Many people and the inhabitants of the cities will yet come. And the inhabitants of one city will go to another and say, let us go at once and entreat the Lord and seek the Lord Almighty. I myself am going. And many people and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem and seek the Lord Almighty to entreat him. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In those days, Ten people from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, let us go with you because we have heard that God is with you. Thank you so much, Hurry, for reading for us. And uh, hello, everyone. Welcome. Uh, let me uh, extend from me. It's great to have you here with us this morning and uh, I want to apologise if this is uh, simply a preacher's perspective. I always get a little bit sad about this time of a sermon series because with today we're over halfway through and uh, after today there's just two weeks left and um, I always find that a bit hard because I think, oh, this has been so rich for us and uh, it's all coming to an end. Um, it's been so encouraging though to see so many people working so hard, I think, not just to understand this word of God through Zechariah but also to put it into practice. Um, I've said to you before that we chose this book specifically to help us as a church to try and come back from a lot of the challenges of the last two years and especially the last six to nine months. Uh, lots of challenges where lots of us, I think, found things pretty tough going spiritually and we found it a bit hard to persevere with joy and maybe we found it a bit hard to not turn just a little bit inward and there are understandable reasons for all of that, but the effect of it could be really uh, devastating, I think, if it means that we turn away from each other in love, perhaps, or away from the world in mission, or most seriously of all, if it means that we're turning away from God in our devotion to Him. And so we chose this book to help us as we come back, because all of those things and more were going on for the people of Israel in the days of Zechariah the prophet. Uh, 20 years earlier, they had returned from exile. 
but the land they'd come back to, and especially Jerusalem, the capital, it was largely in ruins. The prophets had promised kind of peace and prosperity, but not heaps of that has so far seemed to eventuate. Ah, still under Persian rule, no great glory among the nations. Yes, I mean, they had started to rebuild the temple. In fact, they'd even got as far as finishing the foundation. But when opposition came and hardships arose, all of that work ground to a complete halt. But more recently, um, the prophet Zechariah and his fellow prophet Haggai, who is the book right before Zechariah in the Old Testament, they had come to the people of God bringing the word of God. And especially through Zechariah, um, I guess reminding God's people that it wasn't enough simply for them to have returned geographically to the land. What they also needed to do now was to return spiritually to God in their hearts, turning away from all sin and aligning their lives completely with the kingdom that God was establishing and all of the purposes that God was committed to bringing about. And so the front half of the book, the the eight visions that we've looked at for the last couple of weeks, God talked about how uh, he was going to rebuild his temple and he was going to return to his people and he was going to remove their sin and he was going to rebuke the nations and he was going to re-establish his worldwide rule. But see, today we're at chapter 7 and 8 and Huri just read for us, it's a long unit and it's really the introduction to the second half of the book. In chapter 7, verse 1, it's now the fourth year of King Darius, which means we're two years on from all the visions that we've been looking at. And the issue at hand is a very particular question from the people of a town called Bethel, a question they have for God, and they come to Jerusalem to ask the prophets and priests at the end of verse 3, and we'll get this up on the screen, should I mourn and fast in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? Now, granted... This is perhaps not the question that you and I would normally ask about. Uh, I don't know if you've ever engaged in a fast. We talked about this as a staff team during the week, just asking one another if any of us have ever done this. Not really the question that we might ask, but in the Old Testament, fasting was very often a sign of lament over sin and of a repentance from it, turning away from sin and back to God. It was a grief-filled recognition that sin was offensive to God. And so it's no wonder that after Jerusalem was destroyed and the people carried off into exile, they began this series of annual fasts because they knew that this exile was God's judgment at their sin. But now that they're back safely in the land and the work on the temple has begun again and largely through the influence of Zechariah and Haggai, well, their question is, should we keep doing those fasts as we have done for so many years? Now our situation is changing. Should we still be fasting in the fifth month? It's a very particular question, isn't it? It's a very practical question. It's an ethics question, not a theology question. The people want to know what to do or what not to do now that their situation is changing. However... Sometimes the questions we ask are not a very reliable guide to the things that God says we need to know. And I think that's the case here in in Zechariah 7 and 8, because the answer that God gives to that question takes the rest of these two chapters, and it says hardly anything about the matter of fasting. That will come up, but only a little bit. 
I mean, two chapters, that's a big block. It might feel like a lot for us to take in in the next couple of minutes. I think it gets a bit easier for us, though, and if you've got Zechariah open, it'd be good to follow this through, but we'll get it up on the screen. We recognise that the, the opening words of chapter 7, verse 4, then the word of the Lord Almighty came to me, are repeated again in chapter 8, verse 1. The word of the Lord Almighty came to me. And they're said one more time in chapter 8, verse 18. The word of the Lord Almighty came to me. Uh, that is, to the people's question about fasting, God's answer comes in three parts. And in each one, God reminds them about something that he has done, is doing, or is about to do. And then he teaches them about a particular manner of life that he wants them to take up, which is normally far more important than the matter of fasting. So let's start with part one of the answer, what the Lord did to the ancestors in the past. Uh, verse four of chapter seven, the word of the Lord Almighty came to me, ask all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh month, so now we find out that it wasn't just the fifth month, it was also the seventh month, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh month for the past 70 years, was it really for me that you fasted? And when you were eating and drinking, were you not just feasting for yourselves? My guess is that these words would have been like a slap in the face for the delegation from Bethel because what God seems to be suggesting is that when they fasted, it was for their sake, not for his In other words, rather than being any genuine sign of grief at their sin, rather than being any genuine indication of their repentance towards God, all they had really been doing was trying to manipulate God through a little bit of religious play acting. Hoping that if they just put on a good enough show, then perhaps the exile would end early. It's a great reminder to us, isn't it, that outward forms of religious observance, of religious rituals, even ones that involve genuine self-denial, like a fast in the fifth and seventh month. They, by themselves, are no guarantee of anything when it comes to a person's honest devotion to God. Does not Jesus say the same thing again and again through the Gospels as he deals with religious leaders? Uh, you've probably heard, it's not uncommon these days, people describe themselves as, oh, I'm spiritual, I'm not religious. You know that phrase? I think the Bible tells us that actually our far bigger danger is to be religious and not spiritual. That is to keep all manner of religious observance and yet still be complete strangers to God. By themselves, outward forms of religious observance neither fool God nor impress him. What counts is the heart. But you see, what's far worse than the religious hypocrisy of Zechariah's generation, that kind of shallow pretense of religion, is the fact that their ancestors struggled with exactly the same problem. So verse 7, are these not the words that the Lord proclaimed through the earlier prophets when Jerusalem and its surrounding towns were at rest and prosperous? You read Isaiah 1 and you can see exactly the same problems for those ancestors. Shallow, empty religious ritual that didn't please God. 
But now look with me at verses 11 and 12 and just see how badly those ancestors responded to the word of the Lord because it was a fourfold failure of epic proportions. Verse 11, first, they refused to pay attention. Second, they stubbornly turned their backs and covered their ears. Third, verse 12, they made their hearts as hard as flint. And fourth, they would not listen to the law or to the words that the Lord Almighty had sent by his spirit through the prophets. It's hard to think of anything more they could have done to deliberately ignore the loving warning of their God. And of course, we too must take great care today, whenever we hear the word of the Lord, not to harden our hearts or to turn our backs as they did. Because to refuse God's word is to refuse God himself. And that's why God was so very angry with those ancestors and sent them into exile. He scattered them among the nations. I don't know if you're familiar with the, the quote by the, the, the German philosopher, I think this, George Hegel. He once said this, the only thing that we learn from history is that we learn nothing from history. Now, maybe that's true a lot of the time, but God tells his people that they must learn from their history. They must learn from what God did to their ancestors. One of the reasons that those ancestors were sent into exile is because they refused to listen to the word of God that rebuked them for the hypocrisy of their religious rituals. And now there's this delegation from Bethel who've come to Jerusalem asking with a question about fasting. What God really wants is something completely different. Verse 9. This is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. Do we see the point here? God is not served by outward religious ritual. He is served by lives that are inwardly transformed by the knowledge of God's character and by the experience of his powerful saving deeds. So the reason that God's people are to administer true justice is because that's the kind of justice that God administers. The, the reason that God's people are to show mercy and compassion to each other is because mercy and compassion are what God has shown them. The reason God's people are not to oppress the, the fatherless or the widow or the, the foreigner or the poor is because God makes such people the special object of his care and protection. The reason God's people are not to plot evil is because the Lord hates wicked schemes. Now, of course, all of these things are clearer for us through the Lord Jesus Christ than they were even in the days of the Jews of Zechariah's time. But that only makes the argument more compelling, doesn't it? As through Christ we grow in our knowledge of God's character, as through Christ we come to experience God's powerful saving deeds, that knowledge and that experience are meant to transform us from within, from our hearts. So that more and more we grow to love what God loves and hate what God hates and treasure what God treasures. 
By all means, friends, fast. If your devotion to God calls for it. Or if you are grieved at your sin and you want to turn from it back to him. But never merely fast. As if that alone would somehow impress God. What he really wants is for his people to pursue justice and compassion and to put evil away. Well, there's the first part of God's answer. The second part begins at chapter 8, verse 1. This is the longest of the three units. One of the things that I think helps break this section down for us is if we notice there's actually a sevenfold repetition of the phrase, this is what the Lord Almighty says. So these seven paragraphs that kind of build for us here. And so it's verses 2, 3, 4 and 6 and then 7, 9 and 14. And there's a movement through the seven paragraphs that kind of takes us from the things that God is about to do for his people to how they must respond in return. So verse 2, for example, God talks about the way that he burns with jealous love for Zion, that mount in Jerusalem where the temple was built. Verse 3, he talks about how he's going to return to Zion and he will dwell in Jerusalem. And so they're both going to be renamed and they'll come to be known as the faithful city and the holy mountain. Uh, in verse 4, the streets of Jerusalem are going to teem with God's people. What a contrast to the exile. But now they will teem with God's people, both the very old and the very young. Uh, in verse 7, talk, God talks about how he's going to bring his people back from the nations where he scattered them. He's going to be their God and they're going to be his people. There's just a handful of verses, this beautiful little sketch of the kingdom that God is establishing on earth where God's people are going to be in God's presence and they're going to live uh, under God's blessing, in God's place. And since all these are, are what God is going to do for his people, how should they respond? Well, two things. First of all, at verse 9, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Now hear these words. Let your hands be strong so that the temple may be built and we can kind of see that that's the theme of this unit because it, the paragraph ends the same way at the end of verse 13. Do not be afraid, but let your hands be strong. It's basically the ancient equivalent of get yourself a pair of these, I think. Because we have WHS, we have to wear gloves. They just had hands and so they had to make their hands strong, but we wear gloves. This is the equivalent. In light of all that God is about to do for his people, the urgent task that they must give themselves to is the building of the temple. Because that's where God's going to live, in their midst. And everyone needs to be part of that work. No passive bystanders, no annual membership passes where you can just casually drop in whenever it suits you and check out how the work is going. Now this is get on board territory. This is roll up your sleeves. Put your hand to the plough. Get your nose to the grindstone. Put your shoulder to the wheel. Get a pair of these. I mean, whichever of those phrases is the one that helps you remember that God wants his people to work in the kingdom that he is establishing. Imprint it on your mind and in your heart this day. Because there will always be things that make us want to throw in the towel on the work of God's kingdom. The Jews of Zechariah's day could tell us that. Remember how 20 years ago they'd started the work full of steam? 
But when the opposition came and hardships arose and they, they pulled up stumps. God wants more from this new generation. He wants a spirit of perseverance in the work of his kingdom. Just like the soldier who doesn't get involved in civilian affairs, but whose only desire is to please his commanding officer. Just like the athlete whose only focus is to win the victor's crown. Just like the hardworking farmer whose only goal is to get a share of the crops. Let your hands be strong says the Lord Almighty. Get yourself a pair of these because there is work to be done. There is a temple to be built. But then as well as that, uh, once again, God calls his people to live lives that are inwardly transformed by the knowledge of his character and by the experience of his powerful saving deeds. Do you see verse 16? These are the things you are to do. Speak the truth to each other and render true and sound judgment in your courts. Do not plot evil against each other. Do not love to swear falsely. I hate all this, declares the Lord. It's a lot like the list back in chapter 7, 9 and 10, isn't it? A little bit different, but some of them are the same and it's certainly the same spirit. Two things to do. Speak the truth to each other. Render true and sound judgments in your courts. Two things not to do. Plot evil, love to swear falsely. Uh, in John 13, Jesus teaches his disciples, he's just washed their feet, this incredibly humble act of love. And he teaches them that they will be recognised as his disciples by the quality of their self-sacrificing, practical love for one another. And it's really struck me this week in Zechariah 7 and 8, through these kinds of verses, that this is almost an anticipation of that kind of teaching. God's people are to have such a manner of life together that it would be clear that God is among them. Yes, the temple must be rebuilt. That's where God is going to come and live with them. But God's people with God in their midst must live in God's ways. And since he loves truth and justice, then so too must they in their dealings with one another. And since he hates all forms of falsehood and malice, then so too must they in their dealings with one another. Okay, two parts down, one to go. The last bit of the answer is the shortest of the three. It starts at chapter 8, verse 18. And now at last, God does say something about the matter of fasting. Verse 19, this is what the Lord Almighty says. The fasts of the 4th, 5th, 7th and 10th months, we now find out that there were four months of the year they were doing this, they will become joyful and glad occasions and happy festivals for Judah. And you see how the whole question is now turned completely on its head. The people came asking, should we continue our fasts? And God says, look, in the future, not only will you not continue fasting, but the times when you did fast will now become times of feasting. It's a 180 degree pendulum swing in the opposite direction completely. Therefore, now, for one last time, the end of verse 19, love, truth, and peace. It's much briefer than what we've seen in chapter 7, 9, and 10, and chapter 8, 16, and 17, but it's the same spirit once again, isn't it? As God teaches his people that they are to live lives that are transformed inwardly by their knowledge of his character and by their experience of his powerful saving deeds, in view of the kingdom that God is establishing, God's people are to live new lives. 
They are to become lovers of truth and peace. And when God's people live in God's presence, under God's blessing, in God's ways, well, there is something that the world cannot help but sit up and pay attention to. And do you see the way that this is emphasised for us in the closing couple of verses of this chapter? Verse 20 talks about many people and the inhabitants of many cities. Verse 22 talks about many people and powerful nations. Verse 23 talks about ten people from all languages and nations. And all of them are making their way into Jerusalem to come and seek the Lord because they have worked out that God really is among this people. Now, believe me when I tell you that we did not plan this as carefully as it might appear to the casual observer, but how brilliant, given that this is where chapters 7 and 8 take us with the nations coming into Jerusalem, that today, like in the bulletin letter in our family spot, in our interview before the Bible reading, we've been thinking about the gospel going across cultures. I'd love to tell you we had all that planned, but we didn't. God God did. But how brilliant, because you see, from the very beginning, this has always been God's great intention to bless his people so that through them his blessing might come to all peoples on earth. Salvation has never been just for their sake, always it was for the sake of the nations. And we know that what God promised in the days of Zechariah and then fulfilled in miniature as that temple was rebuilt in Jerusalem, but he has fulfilled maximally for us through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he is the saviour of all people, not only for Jews, but also for Gentiles, for the nations, for non-Jews. And that's why in Luke 24, he, Jesus talks about the fact that repentance for the forgiveness of sins is going to be preached in his name to all nations. Because this is the kingdom of his son that God is now building and establishing. So in light of Zechariah 7 and 8, what does this all mean for us? Well, I think it means that our lives really are to be completely reorganised and completely realigned to reflect the, the priorities and the purposes that God has set for the establishment of his kingdom. We've, we've understood the work that God is doing in this age. Our lives are now to reflect that. If our trust is in Christ, anything less than that would be both foolish and faithless. Outward forms of religion are not what God desires from us. But hearts that are increasingly captured by the glory and the splendour and the majesty of Christ. Lives that are renewed by in the mind and constantly transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we're able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing perfect will. And we're able to offer ourselves to him as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Well, yes, he does want that. A people who are committed, his people who are committed to administering justice and to showing mercy and compassion to one another to speaking the truth to each other and to being lovers of truth and peace. Well, yes, he does want that. People who are ready to let their hands be strong 
for the building of the body of Christ, which is the church of the living God, which is the new temple in which God dwells by his Holy Spirit. Not that physical building in the physical Jerusalem on the other side of the world, but this here, the church of God. People who will build it out by the work of evangelism by prayerfully seeking to share the gospel of Christ with those who are still lost so that the Lord might once again add to our number daily those who are being saved. People who are committed to building it up by the work of edification, prayerfully speaking the gospel of God's grace to one another so that the Lord might build us to maturity and help us bear fruit in every way that is pleasing in his sight and that we might live lives of of godliness and joyful endurance. People who have got such a grasp on the kingdom that God is committed to establishing through his son that they have now realigned their lives completely to that work using their time and their talent and their treasure, that Christ may be proclaimed in this age. Well, yes, he does want that. Let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, this ancient word, two and a half thousand years ago, and yet so pertinent for us today, we pray that you would give us such a clear vision of the kingdom that you are building through your Son and of the work that you call us to be involved in, that it may be built even in our time and place. Heavenly Father, help us to be godly and to pursue justice and mercy and compassion and truth and peace. Help us to love the things that you love, but help us also to get involved with building the temple that you are now building, the church of yours that is bought with the blood of Christ.